think three things that certainly in the last 100, 150 years have given people a sense of stability in their world. The family, the church and the nation are all in flux at the moment. And I want to reflect upon why that might be the case. And then the final, the fourth lecture, I want to think about how the church might respond to this situation. And again, to give a little foretaste of that final lecture, I, it's going to sound like a lot of bad news in the first three lectures. But the, 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 the conclusion of my final lecture is going to be this, that if the church merely treats our current uh, rapid marginalization within the culture as a source for despair or lamentation, Despair is, is never, I think, legitimate, but lamentation is legitimate. If we merely see it as a cause for lamentation, then we perhaps miss an opportunity. And I want to make the case on the back of what I will have said in the first three lectures that actually the, the marginalization of the church, maybe in our lifetimes, will be, will be painful and difficult, but could actually provide us with a great opportunity for building towards the future. So, first of all then, the first lecture, I want to talk about our strange new world. Many of us, of course, are familiar with books and movies whose plots revolve around central characters finding themselves trapped in worlds where nothing behaves in quite the way they expect. I remember as a child reading uh, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. And you remember those stories, Alice finds herself in this world where nothing is quite as it seems, and she's left rather confused at points. Uh, Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass are wonderful examples of, of children's literature and are entertaining to read, but there are more dystopian novels out there, of course. We might think of Franz Kafka's The Trial, where Joseph Kay, this, uh, this man, finds himself accused of arrested and accused of a crime, but nobody tells him exactly what the crime is. And the book is spent, uh, Joseph Kay, trying to unravel the mystery of what's going on. And when you read the book, you are left with a sense of, of being disoriented, and not understanding the world in which Joseph Kay finds himself. I have not seen them, but I'm reliably informed by students that the Matrix series of movies presents a not dissimilar view of reality. Perhaps the odd thing about our day and age, of course, is that this is no longer fiction. For many of us, it is the world in which we now live, where nothing behaves in quite the way it did even five years ago. Uh, when you think of Obergefell v. Hodges, the uh, Supreme Court's decision uh, relative to gay marriage, the recognition of gay marriage by, by the state. That was only in 2015, and yet it seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, when uh, the president of, my wife and I had dinner with the president of Grove City College uh, in the last year, and he commented, he was Deputy Attorney General under George W. Bush, and I think he was uh, affirmed, confirmed by the Senate in, I think it was 2005, by a unanimous vote of the session. A Republican nomination uh, confirmed by a unanimous vote of the session. And I've not looked at it, but apparently if you look up the, the hearings on YouTube, uh, at the end you see Chuck Schumer going over and giving 
Brenda, uh, his wife, a big hug. That was just 15 or 16 years ago, during my time in the United States. It's impossible to imagine that happening today. And yet, often those problems, the problems of this strange new world, are tragically not confined to the world out there. Remember when, uh, when I was pastoring and a, and, and a professor, and uh, of course I had a family, I always felt that as long as the family was fine, it didn't matter what went on in the church or in the place of work, there was always somebody, somewhere, I could go to to escape, if you like. Uh, tragically, the problems of the strange new world now afflict families. Parents teaching their children traditional views of sex find themselves met with incomprehension by their children, who are not bad kids, but have just learned very different standards and ideas. Not primarily, I would suggest, in schools, but often online. What a parent considers to be a loving response to a child struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria might be regarded by their own child as hateful and bigoted. And I think that's as true within the church as it is within wider society. As I've spent my last six to eight months traveling the country and speaking on my book, uh, I have rarely spoken when I've not had some parent come up to me after my lecture and say, I'm struggling with this with my child, or my child is transitioning genders, something like this. The strange new world is, I think, part and parcel of the life that many people now read and live. The challenge, of course, is how to address this. How do we think about this? Part of the problem, I think, is caused by the fact that so many areas of life now seem to be in flux. We don't really have anywhere solid to stand in order to be able to address the various things that press in on us. And yet I'm convinced that understanding one thing and the history of that one thing will help us orient ourselves within the world in which we now find ourselves. And that is the notion of what I call the self. If we start to think about the world in terms of selves, and the world in terms of the self, I won't say that things start to make sense, but we can start to see how the various fragments that often seem disparate, that often seem disconnected, we can start to see how these fragments connect together and start to make a kind of coherent sense relative to the history. Now, of course, the term self needs some explanation. There's a common sense way in which we use the term self. And that's usually to refer to ourselves as individual consciousnesses. That's a sort of fancy way of saying, I know I'm me and not Tito. I know I'm not me and not the President of the United States. If I thought I was Tito, if I thought I was the President of the United States, you'd know there was something odd going on. You'd know that Truman has really lost all sense of self. He's bad. He needs to be treated in some way. That's the common sense use of the term self. I want us to think this evening, though, about the term self 
in a more profound way. I want to think about it in terms of the deeper notion of what is the real me and the real you. And perhaps express that in a series of questions. A series of questions that when you answer them will give you a good idea of how you think of the self. Are you, for example, primarily to be understood in terms of your obligations towards and dependence upon others? Does education consist in training you in the demands and expectations of the wider culture and forming you into that which will serve the community at large? It's a joke that students at Grove have no idea what this is like, but I went to a very traditional boys' school in England. It was run by, it was a state school that you had to pass a test to go. And it was a school where we all wore uniforms, we all had assembly in the morning, we all played team sports. Uh, the idea was to crush individuality and to make you part of the team. That's not the philosophy of education that now dominates our culture. I remember when I graduated university, all the guys had to line up against the wall, and I presume all the women had a similar uh, experience, and, and all the guys, we had to raise our trousers, or you would say pants, by uh, about four inches, so that the head porter could check that all of our socks were the regular shade of black. <laughs> because if they'd been out of whack, we would not have been allowed to graduate. You go to an American graduation, Everybody's doing their own thing. Graduation I went through was, you lose your individuality and become part of something much bigger than you. Is that your philosophy of education? Is growing up a process by which I learn to control my feelings, to act with restraint and sacrifice my desires to those of the community around me? A great thing about COVID, the one great thing to me about COVID was, nobody tried to hug me. Months. <laughs> I don't like handshake, that's fine. But I'm English, we don't hug, we, we shake hands, and that's just enough intimacy. Thank you very much. Uh, I have a sign on my office door at uh, Grove about what an English guy says, what an American thinks he means, or what the English guy thinks he means. And uh, one of the things is, you know, next time you're in town, you must come and visit. What the American thinks is, he likes me, he wants me to come and visit him. Uh, the English guy says, I'm just being polite, I'm trying to get rid of this person. <laughs> so, but think, or perhaps you're to understand yourself not as born with obligations and dependencies, but you do understand yourself as born free and able to create your own identity. Perhaps you understand education as consisting in enabling you to express outwardly that which you feel inwardly. Listening to a news report the other week on an attack in California, a school to bring in school uniforms, and the parents were up in arms because, quote, they wanted their kids to be able to express themselves through their clothing. Now, you need to have individuality crushed. That's what education is about. My conviction is that the normative self, the typical way in which we think of each of our identities, is the one who answers those last three questions in the affirmative. The one we all think of ourselves as born free and able to create our own identities. We all think of education 
is that which allows us to express outwardly that which we feel inwardly. And we see growing up as a process not of learning restraint, but of capitalizing on opportunities to perform. That's a new version of self. The technical term for this notion of self, I think, dominates the way society thinks about what makes a genuine individual, is expressive individualism. It's coined by uh, the American sociologist uh, Robert Bell in the 90s as a term. And this is how he defines it. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. You are your feelings, and to be an authentic person means that you should be able to express those feelings outwardly. Very different to the kind of traditional English education I have, where the whole purpose was that one learned to control one's feelings and hold them in. That's not the way of the Western world today. Charles Taylor, the uh, Canadian philosopher, talking about this says, the culture of authenticity in which we now live is one where each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own, as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation, or religious, or political authority. In short, we might say, the modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with our own inward feelings. Think about how that shaped society. Think about the increasing social sensitivity shown to criticizing anyone for their personal lifestyle choice. That's an expressive individual world where if you say something hurtful, it's bad. Try to press on the students again that there's a difference between uh, something being wrong and something being hurtful. I'm bald. You can say, Trim's a bald guy with crooked teeth. That's a correct statement. It's very hurtful, but it's an absolutely correct statement. Think about the sensitivity that's developed towards any kind of criticism of anybody in our culture. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the shifting of the self to my inner feelings. And anything that touches or inhibits, contradicts my inner feelings, becomes hurtful or oppressive. Many of us, of course, are particularly disturbed by radical changes in society's sexual norms over recent decades. Even more, perhaps, by the rise of the trans movement. But I would suggest that these things are actually functions of this modern self. We can't treat them in isolation. We need to see the way they come to grip the modern imagination as a function of how individuals Think about themselves. It's very interesting if you go to uh, uh, if you go online and read the Diane Sawyer interview with Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner from 2015. I think it's a 60 minutes website. It's very interesting the language that Jenner uses. Jenner will talk about having lived a lie, having been forced to play a role, 
but being at last free to be the person who always was. That's interesting language. That's expressive individual language. The real me is something within. I need to be allowed to express that. So I think uh, another way of getting expressive individualism is uh, the contrast between myself and my grandfather. Grandfather's been dead nearly 30 years, but I think if uh, my grandfather was here tonight and I were to ask him, uh, Granddad, did you get job satisfaction? Uh, my granddad was a poor man. He left school at 14. He worked in the factory as a sheet metal worker for 50 odd years and then he retired. Uh, and he did a job that I would regard as incredibly tedious and boring. But I'm pretty sure my grandfather would say yes. Yeah, you know, Probably I could explain to him what job satisfaction was. I very much doubt that he ever asked himself that question. But if he, if he answered it, I think he'd say this, yes, I got job satisfaction because Generally, I got paid fair day's pay for an honest day's work. But I had enough money to put bread on the table and to put shoes on my children's feet. I had enough money to meet my obligations to others. And that was what gave me great satisfaction. I'm guessing, and I include myself in this, you know, if you ask me that question, do you get job satisfaction? I'm going to give a very different answer. I'm going to talk about how I love teaching how I get a great buzz from being in front of the classroom, engaging in banter with the students, the satisfaction of explaining a difficult idea and seeing the light bulbs go on in the eyes of students who didn't understand, now do understand. But notice what I'm saying. My concept of job satisfaction is all about me and my inner feelings. It's not really about fulfilling my responsibilities to others. That's the shift in the notion of self. And if you're sitting here tonight thinking, well, that's them out there, that isn't the church, think about the church. If you've never ever, if you've ever left a church because, quotes, it wasn't meeting my needs. If you've ever left the church because something was said there that you found hurtful, even though it may have been true, then that's a function of this kind of selfhood that I'm talking about. I mentioned sexual identity, and that, of course, brings us to the sexual revolution. The most pressing way in which we experience the transformation of the culture around us, I think, is the sexual reformation, sexual revolution. That's what's tearing families apart. That's what's putting parents at loggerheads with their kids. That's what's bringing the First Amendment under such tremendous pressure in our wider culture. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more tomorrow, but I want to define the sexual revolution in this first lecture because I think so often Christians misunderstand what the sexual revolution is really about. We use the term, of course, to refer to the dramatic changes in attitudes towards sexual activity that have taken place in Western culture since the 1960s. And often we tend to assume that these changes involve merely the expansion of socially acceptable sexual behavior, where once divorce carried huge social stigma. I had a great aunt when I was growing up, and she was divorced, and we were never allowed to mention it because it was a source of shame. Divorce is now acceptable. Homosexuality, once upon a time, people ran the risk of going to prison if they engaged in homosexual activity. Now it's legal. 
And often we tend to think about the sexual revolution in terms of, okay, the canon, the, the range of behavior that's allowed, has been expanded. I want to suggest that the sexual revolution is not actually about a loosening of moral boundaries. It's about the abolition or the complete transformation of moral boundaries. When you think about it, what made adultery wrong? It was considered to be an intrinsically bad thing. What made gay sex wrong? It was considered the act was intrinsically bad. Now, what makes sexual acts right or wrong? Consent. The acts themselves are not seen as having any moral quality whatsoever. What gives them their moral quality is whether everybody involved agreed to what was going on. That's very messy legally and philosophically, by the way, but we'll set that aside for the time being. Well, think about it. When you move from a world where a particular sexual act is regarded as intrinsically wrong, regardless of whether people are consenting to it or not, to having no moral status other than that provided by the consent of the parties involved, you haven't just expanded your notion of acceptable sexual behavior, you've completely transformed the notion of how you understand sexual behavior in its entirety. The sexual revolution does not simply represent a growth in the routine transgression of traditional sexual codes. It's a repudiation of the very idea that lies behind such codes. Think about modesty. Another way of getting at this. When I became a Christian in the 1980s, there would occasionally be debates about modesty in the church. And, uh, you know, it's looking back, they were very sexist debates about modesty. You never heard a debate about modesty about the way men dressed. They were always about the way women dressed. And they tended to focus on the length of skirt or one-piece bathing suits versus two-piece bathing suits or whether you could wear a bathing suit at all. There were debates about the limits, we might say. Well, the concept was agreed on. Anybody agreed there is such a thing as modesty. We now need to define where the limits lie. Nobody debates modesty now. Maybe in the church, but not in the wider culture. In fact, even to raise the question of modesty in the wider culture is to make yourself look ridiculous and prudish. I say this in my book, but I've not seen, I still have not seen, I have no intention of seeing. It would be two hours of my life that I would never get back. Uh, I have no intention of seeing the, the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin. But I know it's a comedy. I know it's a comedy because we live in a world where the idea of being a virgin at the age of 40 is inherently ridiculous. The sexual revolution has not expanded the range of sexual views. It's transformed the meaning of sex entirely. We see that most dramatically in the LGBTQ movement. I think the T is slightly different, but if you think about uh, somebody identifying as gay, I did classics at university, a lot of homosexuality in ancient Greece. Nobody identified as gay. Homosexuality was something you did. It was not something that you are. Now your parent could have a child come to them and say, Dad, I think I'm gay. And that child is not necessarily making any statements about any behavior they've engaged in. A 
talking about their inner desires. Sexual desires are now identities in a way that they never were before. The sexual revolution has changed sex, if you like, from action into an identity. The same applies when you identify straight, but you never identify straight. Heterosexual sex was an activity. We do not identify ourselves by our desires. We identify ourselves by the families we came from, the places we lived, the jobs we did, the people we were married to. The sexual revolution transforms the nature of sex. How has this happened? Well, I want to talk about that really in these lectures. But one of the things I want to suggest right at the start is we make a big mistake as Christians if we think this has happened because of arguments and debates. It's happened because the way people imagine the world to be has been transformed. At the heart of this lies what Charles Taylor calls the social imaginary. It's an awkward term, I'm going to read you uh, Taylor's definition and then I'm going to try to explain it in, in better English than Charles Taylor. He's not a great writer. Charles Taylor says, the social imaginary. I speak of imaginary, he says here, because I'm talking about the way ordinary people imagine their social surroundings, and this is not often expressed in theoretical terms. It's carried in images, stories, legends. It's also the case that theory is often the possession of a small minority, whereas what is interesting in the social imaginary is that it is shared by large groups of people, if not the whole society, which leads to another difference. The social imaginary is that common understanding which makes possible common practices and a widely shared sense of legitimacy. Why is this important? What fascinates me is the way that so many completely crazy ideas have become the common currency of the ordinary man and woman in the street. It doesn't surprise me that students, let's say, at the uh, Berkeley, sitting in gender theory seminars, emerge from those seminars deeply confused about what gender is, or as we used to call it, sex, what sex is, biological sex is. What amazes me is that ordinary men and women in the street now seem to accept that there's a basic distinction between biological sex and gender. And that ordinary man and woman in the street, they've not sat in Judith Butler's postdoctoral seminars. And yet that's now how they imagine the world to be. What Taylor's getting at here is when we think about how society thinks, and when we think about the self, when we think about the sexual revolution, we make a big mistake if we think it's because people are reading heavy books on these subjects and having their views overturned. What's actually going on is that the way people are being taught to intuitively think of the world around them is being transformed. I make this case in one of my courses at Grove City College and say, the sexual revolution, who is more important to the sexual revolution? Wilhelm Reich, the rather odd German disciple of Freud, who wrote the book The Sexual Revolution, or Hugh Hefner, who cleverly combined titillating photographs of famous star Hollywood starlets 
with interviews with leading intellectuals. Hugh Hefner made pornography respectable. Pornography was transformed by Hugh Hefner. I think the man was a genius. Don't get rid of that, it's not an expression of approval. I might say Hitler was a genius in certain circumstances as well. Think about gay marriage. In the run-up to 2015, I had a number of people ask me, can you give us a good argument against gay marriage? And my answer was always, I can give you various good arguments against gay marriage, but none of them will work. Because people don't believe in gay marriage because of an argument. They believe in gay marriage because they watch Will and Grace. Or they have gay neighbors who are lovely people and kind and friendly to them. Their imaginations have been gripped by deeper, broader things in the culture and by arguments. I write for an online magazine, First Things, that's hard copy magazine as well, but on the day that the Obergefell decision was being announced in 2015, the editor wanted to immediately put up responses. So the way you do it is this, if you've sometimes wondered, how is it that magazines are able to respond to judgments so quickly? Well, the answer is, you get the people who write to you to write two articles. One if the judgment goes one way, one if the judgment goes the other way. So I dutifully produced my two articles and I sent them in to my editor and he dropped me a note and said, thanks for the articles, he said, but I noticed there's only one sentence different between the two. Uh, the opening sentence about what the judgment was. And I said, yeah, and that was intentional. He said, because I don't think the Supreme Court judgment will make that much cultural difference. I think it will make a difference to how the matter plays out legally and it may slow things down a little, but the culture's already decided the issue at this point. The Supreme Court is merely going to put its stamp on a decision, you might say, that the social imaginary has already made. Why do I say this? Because I want you to understand right at the start the challenge we face. The way in which the social imaginary is shaped well, it's shaped by those who have their hands on the levers of cultural influence. The Hollywood producers, the TV producers, the newspaper editors, the YouTube, I an influencer. What on earth is an influencer? I've never seen an influencer who should never be allowed to have any influence anymore. But I've become more aware in the last six months of YouTube, TikTok transgender craze, and I use the word craze advisedly among teenage girls, is driven by TikTok and YouTube. The problems we face will not be solved simply by putting our kids in the right schools, or by homeschooling our kids, or making sure that they've got good friends. Because the problems have been created by much deeper and broader social influences and transformations then we are able to turn back the time on single-handedly or within a single generation. So to anticipate what I'm going to say in the next couple of lectures, it's my conviction that the dramatic flux and changes we witness and experience in our society today are related to the fact that we all tend to think of the self in a way that is fundamentally different to that in which it was understood in the past. And the fact that these, the causes for this, are so deeply embedded in all aspects of our culture, 
mean that we are all, to some extent, complicit in what we see happening around us. I suppose if I have one word is to say when, when we think about these things, the knee-jerk tendency of Christians is actually, and ironically, to pray the Pharisees' prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we are not like other men, like the LGBTQ people over here, or the expressive individuals over there. How do you think we're all deeply complicit in this culture? And that's what makes it so difficult to address. That can be very depressing for those who hope that electing the right politician or appointing the appropriate Supreme Court Justice will solve all the world's ills. And that's not to say that voting for the right politician, appointing the right Supreme Court Justice is not a very important thing. It is. But it's not going to solve the problem. It does mean, however, that we can begin to think more constructively about how to address the issues we face. That's the hope I have in giving these lectures. I'm not going to offer any easy answers, but I hope that it provides a framework by which we're all able to better understand, or at least be more self-conscious of, the way in which we think in the West today. And I hope these lectures will be neither a lament nor a polemic. I hope instead they will merely clarify the situation we are in and provide a good solid foundation for thinking about how we might move forward into the future. That's the end of my first lecture. In the second lecture I want to look at where I think all of this really begins to take off. And that's in the late 18th and early 19th century.